Now, for those of you who have been following through the series, I hope by now that you've seen the overwhelming theme of new creation in John's gospel. But if for some reason you still haven't caught on yet, another point arises today. John, as, he, as John shifts from um, the beginning, that Logos chapter where we're hearing about the word, he now shifts to the signs in his gospel. And we'll unpack in a minute what he means by signs. But John presents seven signs, which many scholars see as a literary bridge back to the seven days of creation. Then after the seven signs, John presents another unique sign, which is the resurrection. That signifies a new day, an eighth day, if you will, that steps out of the old order and into the new resurrected world. But these prior seven days all lead up to this special day of resurrection, that day that we're going to celebrate next week, so that, so that we might believe not just that Jesus is a miracle worker, but that we might have new life in his name through the resurrection. That's John's whole purpose in writing this gospel, is to bring new life to believers. That as we believe in him, we have new life in his name. And the first of these signs that Jesus chooses to begin his ministry with is the turning of water to wine. So as you turn in your Bibles, we're going to look at chapter 2 this morning. We're finally out of chapter 1. I think it took us four or five sermons just to get out of chapter 1. So we're finally there to chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then, when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy and inspired word this morning, We ask, as we always do, that we would be inspired by your inspired word, that the same Holy Spirit that breathed these words out uh, to your church, that you would breathe upon us, that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts of sin, that you would turn us away from our sin and be able to turn towards you in repentance and faith. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with all of us, that our eyes would be open to the text and even beyond the text. We pray that our ears would be ready to hear from you and that you would speak to us clearly this morning. I pray that you would be with me, that you would guide my words, Lord. Anything that I say that is not of you, that it would go in one ear and write out the other. Lord, we pray that you would hear all these things in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. So, the scene is set in a wedding where Mary, probably a family friend 
uh, or uh, family friend of the bride or the bridegroom, we're not sure, is invited along with her son Jesus. And Jesus brings his disciples, assuming they were invited to, maybe they were just kind of a plus one or plus twelve or however many disciples he had at the time. So Jesus and his disciples and Mary are all there and the story is set like this. Now every story has a conflict. Every good story at least. And this story starts out right off the bat with a conflict. And what is that conflict? Well, we find it in verse 3. The conflict is the wine ran out. They ran out of wine. Now, this would have been a huge social embarrassment in their day. And it would in our day too. But think about it. Our weddings aren't near as big as theirs. Sometimes theirs would last for even a week on end. So they're partying hard, and then you run out of wine. So it would be a, a pretty big deal if we ran out of wine. But if we ran out of wine, what you would do now is you'd probably hop in the car and run down to the liquor store real quick and just go grab some wine, right? Well, they didn't have that kind of luxury that we have now. They didn't have a car to jump in now. They had a donkey or a horse or something to jump on, and that would take a while to get there. So think about their context. Their transportation was very primitive. The, the businesses were very small scale. They didn't have commercial businesses like we do uh, now. They didn't have 24 packs back then. They didn't have that kind of thing where you could just run down there and get a bunch at once. Uh, so they, they didn't have warehouses where they kept a ton in stock. This is something that would have been uh, just a, whatever's on demand is what they would have. So if someone comes saying, I need hundreds of gallons of wine, they'd be like, I, I don't know. I don't have that way. We can't help you out. And So if, if you just think about all the things that would have uh, come into this to, to make this happen, it was pretty much impossible. Right? To, to get huge batch, huge pots of wine and transport it really quickly and get it to these people, it would have been a, a huge deal. So this was an impossible dilemma. That's what I want you to see here. The party was about to be over. It was about to come to a screeching halt. Now, let me ask you, church, as we're looking at this conflict, I want you to think about your own life, conflicts in your own experience. Has your wine ever ran out? Have you ever got yourself into a, a predicament where the party was about to just stop? come to an absolute halt. Not literal wine, of course, but just think about that. In your own experience, have you found yourself to where there was no conceivable solution that you needed delivered from something? Now think about how that felt. That feeling that you got in your gut, maybe you started to sweat and you're just getting really uncomfortable and you're like, I don't know how this all works out. Maybe everyone else is continuing on as normal, but here you are, you have this knowledge that is causing you deep anxiousness. Maybe even depression, maybe just scared, maybe it's fear. Who knows what it is? This is probably what the bride and bridegroom were experiencing at this moment. These are the kind of things that they were feeling. And what I want you to see is that we all face major and minor conflicts in the story of our lives. Stories just like this. And Jesus is showing you in this story that he cares about them all. Even the smallest things, like running out of wine, making sure that your wedding party continues on as it should. So what is the resolution to this conflict? We've seen the conflict now. How does it get resolved? Well, Mary comes to Jesus and lets Jesus know about the situation. They have no wine, she says, which is a pretty big deal. Jesus looks at her and says, woman, what does this have to do with me, essentially? So, so I want to ex- unpack that just a little bit. Uh, his response at first might seem a little bit like he's being cold, doesn't it? He calls her woman here in this predicament, but it's not necessarily the case that he's being cold. Woman is actually the way that Jesus consistently addresses women. So maybe it's just his way of addressing women. Maybe it's the, the culture in their day. Maybe it was not so uh, offensive. Now if I, I addressed any of, you, any of you women in the room and I came up to you and said, Woman, you'd probably immediately be offended. <laughs> but I don't think that that was the case in, in their scenario. Uh, later in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he calls her a woman when he approaches her. In both of these situations, we see that Jesus is acting 
compassionately. So we know that his, his heart is right in it, and what he's doing is actually uh, acting towards them in compassion. So he's not trying to be rude in any way, and if they did perceive it, that's, uh, that's fault on their end, right? So Jesus is actually sinless, we know this, so he's not doing anything improperly, he's not being rude, and I don't even think he's even stepping on any toes. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now I believe when he asks this, he's actually asking a genuine question. I don't think he's just kind of being sarcastic. He's, he's asking Mary, what would you like me to do, Mom? What, what, are you, what exactly are you asking me to do about this situation? So he says this because Mary is essentially asking him to do something big. That's what I think. Mary knows who Jesus is, right? An angel of the Lord came and said, this is going to be a big deal that you're having here, this baby, right? So he, she knows who Jesus is. She knows the capabilities that Jesus has. Now, we don't know if Jesus performed any miracles before this. It's, it's doubtful that he did. But Jesus is known by Mary. Mary knows Jesus better than anyone. She knows that she can trust Jesus with a situation like this. So his concern is not whether or not he should exhibit compassion. It's how can he do that without getting ahead of himself when it comes to his ministry, right? His hesitancy is due to the timing of the miracle, not the miracle itself. So there's that uh, other possible conflict, right, is that Jesus kind of reveals himself before the time is ready. He says, my hour has not yet come. What is he talking about there? Well, this refers to the full manifestation of his glory. Later in the gospel, he says that his hour has come. But when he says it has come, it's in reference to the major actions of his ministry, namely his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's the true sign that Jesus wants every person to get. The, 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 the miracles that lead up to this are just signs, pointers to this big good news that Jesus is bringing. So he's essentially saying, how do you want me to solve this? How do you want me to get out of this? Because my hour hasn't come. It's not the time for me to just show everyone at this party that I'm God. That, that's not something that he was ready for, and that's not the purpose and the plan of God. So he's not ready to go there. So Mary just trusts Jesus to resolve this conflict, but she doesn't tell him how to do it. Now think about that. Mary doesn't say, I want you to do this, son. Do this, do this. Uh, go down to the liquor store, do that, or whatever. No, she just entrusts her servants to Jesus and lets Jesus figure it out on his own. And we can learn something from Mary when we're making requests to God about our day-to-day issues, can't we? When we're asking God to do something in our life, it's much better to just say, God, I have this problem. My wine has ran out. I've run into this issue. And I'm not going to tell you every detail how I think you should fix it, but I'm just going to come to you and ask. I'm going to give you my request and say, here's the problem. You are the solution. right? So this should in some way inform our prayer lives and the way that we interact with Jesus. When we, when we come to him in prayer, we should come to him trusting him that he has a good plan, even better than our plan, to figure it out. So we come humbly to Jesus just like Mary. So next, Jesus commissions his uh, servants to fill the purification jars with water, then take some to the master of the feast. So there's what Jesus' plan is. Fill these jars with water. It's a lot of water, and it's about to be turned into a lot of something else. Now just think about how many gallons this is. It would have been a ton of water. Now these servants go and do this work for Jesus, and J.C. Ryle uh, comments on this, and I just think this is so beautiful. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican minister, and he writes this about this task of the servants. He says, duties are ours, events are God's, it's ours to fill the water pots, it's Christ's to make the water to wine. Isn't that beautiful? Let me say that again. Duties are ours, events are God's, it's ours to fill the water pots, it's Christ's to make the water to wine. In other words, God uses your good works, he uses my good works, he uses all all of our good works to transform them into something that they could not be otherwise. 
Right? We put our own effort forth, and he supernaturally blesses that and takes it into something that we could not have done on our own. He could have started over in this story with new wine. Think about that. Jesus could have made wine from just nothing. He could have made wine happen like that. Instead, he created wine from uh, something that was already there. Think about that. And he uses his servants to create that wine. So he, he chooses to redeem and restore what he's already created, the wine or the water, through his servants. Think about that. This just goes to show his ultimate purpose is restoration and a reenchantment of the ordinary through his chosen people. He didn't just make wine appear in everyone's hands. He used his servants to bring about this wine. He even bring, uh, brought uh, an ordinary thing like water to bring it to wine to do this. It's a beautiful way that Jesus works. He works in a way that is so much more precise and pretty than we could even think of. When we think of how we would uh, figure out this situation, we would, again, say, we will just go to the liquor store, pick up that 24-pack or how many, however much it is. But Jesus does this in such a miraculous and amazing way. So now we reach the climax. In verses 9 through 10, it says this. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, that means drunk, by the way, they are drunk, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. So, Interestingly enough, what we see if we read this slowly and carefully enough, we see that the climax actually isn't even the water turning to wine. Did you catch that? It's that Jesus seamlessly and extravagantly brought the party to its proper fulfillment. Right? It, it just says in passing that the water became wine. It kind of just says it like no big deal. Like the water now became wine. Now he's drinking the wine. And that's where the, the climax happens. When this great feast or this, this great, great master of the feast is drinking the wine and saying this is good stuff. That's where it actually climaxes. So the the climax of the story is evidenced by the response of the master of the feast. He's shocked. He's in awe. He's really surprised at how good the wine is. He has no idea that that was water just a little bit ago. right? So he's impressed that the best wine is saved for last, not the miracle. He has no idea of the miracle. Only the disciples know that. Okay, so that's the story of the first miracle. That's what happened. But there's still work to do in this text. Right? We, we, get, we got the facts down, but we've said before that there's more to the scriptures than just looking at these words. Right? This is teaching us something. Jesus says that the Pharisees are the ones that search the scriptures because in them they think that they have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness to Jesus. So this is telling us about something about Jesus this morning that we need to catch that's deeper than just Jesus performed this miracle. And I'm sorry if I say miracle funny. Bree was reminding me as I was talking about this. She said that I say miracle with kind of like an A, like miracle. I don't know if that's like a, a, a southern Illinois thing, but I was just saying, well, that's what I put on my uh, bacon sandwiches when I make them in the morning. Just put on some miracle whip and just butter it all up good. So, so sorry if my miracle starts to sound like miracle um, as, we, as we continue on. So, so what is this miracle? What is this? sign. What does this mean? If you read verse 11, it says this. It says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. If you're reading the King James, some of those might say that miracle word. It'll say miracle. This is the first of the miracles. But I think that the ESV is actually a little bit better uh, in saying sign. It comes from the Greek word uh, samion, which is the word for sign. You see this in other places in uh, the Gospels. In Matthew 16, it says, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the 
signs, same Greek word there, you, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So a sign points beyond itself towards a deeper meaning. Right? It's, it's kind of sacramental in that way, and that it points towards and deeper, it points towards a deeper truth. So you've heard that saying before, red sky in morning, sailor's warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Right? Now what that means, that red sky in the morning doesn't mean red wavelengths pass through the air more easily than blue ones. That's not what that means. That's what's happening scientifically, yes. But that's not what that saying means. That saying, that text, if you want to think about it and put it in a text form, it means sailor's warning. Right? It means watch out, beware. So it's a sign pointing towards an, emo- an emotional reality that you need to connect with. So a sign needs to be interpreted. That's the point that I'm making. This, this passage here isn't just facts. It needs to be interpreted. We need to see deeper. So if a sign isn't not interpreted, the whole point of the sign isn't going to be revealed. So we need to see something about Jesus here that we wouldn't see otherwise if we're just kind of skimming through the text and saying, yep, that happened, the miracle happened, and then going on. So signs reveal or manifest a hidden meaning to evoke belief. That's the, the real point of the miracle. Is Jesus, John, as he writes this gospel, they want you to believe and to be changed by it. So what does this sign mean? What does this miracle mean? Well, if you look, this sign is framed in a marriage ceremony. I want you to think about this for a minute. Marriage itself is meant to be a mystery which points to our relationship with God, right? In Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes of the marriage relationship and he says that this mystery is profound and it refers to what? To Christ and to the church, right? So if we read this text with New, uh, New Testament eyes, we should see something immediately uh, about this, that this isn't just a marriage, This is talking about more than just a marriage. It's talking about a marriage between Christ and the church. This wedding isn't some distant story way back when. It's meant to do as signs do and to point towards a deeper meaning. Namely, what does this have to do with you and Christ? What does this story have to do with you and Jesus this morning? This is why Jesus often uses weddings and marriage in his teaching and parables. Because it has a lot to do with him and his bride. So I want you to think about it in that kind of framework this morning as we approach this wedding ceremony where we're celebrating marriage. Think about it in that kind of frame of mind. So the sign is framed in marriage because it shows you that this story personally refers to Christ and his bride, which is you and me. Right? So as we move forward, think in those kind of terms. Now further, it teaches the purpose of Jesus for his bride, which is substitutionary restoration with extravagance. And you're like, what in the world? Okay, substitutionary, we'll unpack that in a minute, but substitution, restoration, and extravagance. This is the way that Jesus deals with his church, and we'll see this in a moment. I'll unpack this for you in a bit, but I just want you to see that Jesus has a purpose for his church, and you need to see what it is for you this morning personally. So, substitution. How is this conflict in this story resolved? And also think, how is your conflict in your story resolved? Well, it's resolved by the substitutionary work of Jesus. Right? Jesus steps in as, as our substitute. Did the actual bridegroom have what it took to keep this party going? No, he dropped the ball. We don't know if they just drank way too much, more than he anticipated. Maybe he didn't uh, plan well, or maybe what, who knows what it is. But it was his responsibility to make sure that this happened, and he dropped the ball. It didn't work out, and he didn't have what it took to keep this party going. He needed someone to step in and fulfill this role for him. As a proper bridegroom, doing what he should be doing. That's what happens in the story. Jesus steps in and performs the work of a bridegroom. And the actual bridegroom, interestingly enough, gets all the credit. 
Right? Jesus isn't mentioned when he's brought to the master of the feast. Now try to imagine you're the bridegroom in that scenario. You've really dropped the ball. You got those sweats that we were just feeling about, uh, talking about, and you're just feeling very, very anxious, scared to death, having no idea what's going to happen. And then the, the feast of the, or the master of the feast calls you to come up to him. You're probably sweating bullets, scared to death, and he comes and pats you on the back and says, "This stuff's great." And you're like, "What? What just happened?" Right? So maybe maybe he knew that Jesus did this before he got called there. But the, the fact of the matter is, is I want you to kind of have that feeling of relief that that bridegroom have, had when you think about this. How you had a problem in your life, how you had a predicament, a conflict that you couldn't resolve on your own. And it took someone else patting you on the back and saying, good job, buddy, for you to kind of have that clicking moment where you're like, wait, it's taken care of? It's all better? And that, that's the same feeling that each and every one of you should get each and every week. When we go through the confession of sin, there's your conflict. There's your problem. You know what your issues are each and every week. And that, that silent part of the, the confession, those things that come to your mind, those are the things that cause you to sweat. Those are the anxious things. But in the assurance of pardon, that's the master of the feast saying, good job. And you're like, what? Oh, yeah. The substitutionary work of Jesus. It means something. It means something for your day-to-day life. It's not just this this doctrine that we confess as Protestants. We believe in the penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, it sounds great and fancy. But there's a reality to that, that, that we believe in the substitutionary work of Jesus, and it's actually what keeps us going through the week. It's what gives us that assurance of pardon, where I can walk out of here with a little pep in my step, knowing that my sins are forgiven. I'm actually changed, and I'm accepted by the Father. And he can say that I, I've been accepted by him. So... Jesus, does not, does he not do the same for everyone who believes? It's not just this person in this story. It's for us, too. Because of his works, his righteousness, his obedience to the Father, we are accepted by the master of the feast. And when the Father calls up, uh, us up to account, he looks at us and says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You saved the best for last. This is good stuff right here. So the substitutionary work of Christ should cause us us to feel relieved and freed because he is the only one that keeps the party going, not us. We're reminded of that every week, that we don't keep our lives going. We're a mess every week when we walk in here. But we walk out being reminded that our lives don't have to be a mess. Jesus reorders us and changes us. So when our wine runs out because of sin, Jesus is there to fill to the brim with all righteousness in our place so that we can stand before the master accepted by the work of another. So it's in this gracious, that's, that's grace if you didn't catch that. You didn't deserve that. This is a gracious thing that God does to us in Jesus. So this gracious substitutionary sign that the disciples believed in is for us too. It's that same good news that we believe in that actually causes us to believe and have new life just like the disciples did. So there's the substitutionary. What about the restoration? How is Jesus' purposes for us restorative? Well, God is renewing the brokenness. We're, we're a broken people. We live in a broken world caused by sin. It wasn't just this abstract thing out there. It's something actually very close and personal to us, isn't it? Right? And it's God's purpose to restore us. So the signs in John's uh, gospel are not divine interventions to, to break the created order, but to fix it. Think about that. In other words, his miracles do not break the laws of creation. They actually restore and mend the brokenness of it. So the world was not built for sin and evil. This place doesn't function at its best when you are sinning, when evil is in the world, when Satan is doing his best, when demons are doing their best and the demonic is out running rampant, right? The world functions best when it's functioning according to the law of God. 
So the miraculous should not be a, a defiance, seen as a defiance of the scientific, but actually a reconceptualization of what the world was actually made for. It was made for goodness. It was made for righteousness. The only laws that Jesus breaks when he performs signs are the laws of our own mind that we've constructed that say nature must do this. The scientist says nature has to do this, so it has to do this. And if it does anything else, then I don't believe that. Right? So something's happening here where Jesus is actually kind of stopping on some toes, isn't he? Right? Water doesn't typically turn to wine. That's not something that you see every day. And if it does, please have me over for dinner. I'd love to see that happen. So, so in, in many ways, this is the point of Jesus' miracles. They often upset the authorities of their day. Anytime Jesus performs a miracle, someone's ticked off about it. It's, it you can almost bank on it. So the, the religious leader, uh, they see that as a breach of their law. Like they've got a conception in their mind. They've got an idea of, of the way that the world works. And Jesus just messes that up. He just messes the hair up of the Pharisees all the time. And he's glad to do it. He's super happy to do it. So the ones that use their authority to prop themselves up are offended when God, when God breaks their laws. But if they were really in service to God, think about this. If, if those people, those Pharisees, those type of uh, people, if they were in service to God, they would celebrate what God is doing as he always did, which is to restore to fix what's broken, to heal, right? Jesus is actually doing a great thing, but they're so caught up in their laws and their rituals and their traditions that they can't see past something good that Jesus is doing. So I just want to say that so we can be careful about the way that we think about what Jesus is doing with these signs. So think about it. The Pharisee would have been quite excited to see at the wedding all the wedding guests washing in their purification jars. Remember, that's what the jars were for, right? Wash your hands, the Pharisee says. So these jars were made for that. But Jesus is much more concerned with a blessed marriage and wine to celebrate it than he is to wash your hands. And we know this because in Mark's gospel it says that Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders. They're pretty ticked about it. Jesus is going around. John and his disciples, they wash their hands. But Jesus, for some reason, they're just doing it dirty. They're just grabbing stuff and eating, and they're all ticked about it. And I don't know why, but well, I guess I do know why. Because they have in their mind this conception of what holiness looks like, what righteousness looks like, what goodness looks like. And when Jesus steps on their toes, they're saying, why are you breaking our laws? Right? This is stepping on our toes. This is not what we intended. Your word says this, and we've implied from this and built this law around that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I never said that. What are you talking about? You're just putting on burdens on people's shoulders that they can't even hardly hold up. Now, perhaps this is just a divine jab at men who are more interested in making people follow their laws than cultivating restoration to God's laws. Maybe that's what the signs are for, to help us realize that. Unless we think that we're more pious than the Pharisees, many people I know, maybe even some of you at this, uh, uh, this church here this morning, would rather the wedding party not have alcohol at their wedding at all, right? After all, the, the tradition of our American religious context, right, where we're all from, we're religious Americans, our religion is teetotalism, right? No wine, because wine could actually cause you to stumble one day, so just do away with it all. And Jesus is actually blowing all those conceptions up, isn't he? Not only is he at the wine or at the party with the wine, but he's giving wine to these people to, to, to say, where does my word say that we can't do this? Where does my word say that we can't celebrate? So Jesus' divine purpose is to restore things to the way that they should be according to the divine purpose, God's purpose, not man's purpose. And he did this in this story by keeping the wine flowing. And the result was that he didn't just save the bridegroom's behind. 
Right? It wasn't just the bridegroom that was uh, potentially in a mess here. It was the whole party. The whole party was about to be crashed. And D- Jesus doesn't just save this one bridegroom. He actually saves the whole party, keeps the party going, and everyone's happy. It's amazing. And this brings me to my last point, which is that Jesus does things with extravagance. It says in verse 10, this. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I want you to note something as we we look at these two wines. Note the two different wines in this narrative. You have the first wine and the second wine. The first wine is the wine which is good, and it's fitting, and it served its purpose. The people are drunk by this point, right? It's, It's doing its job. They are partying on. But the problem was is that it ran out. They didn't have any more. And this wine serves as a symbol for the old covenant. The law served its purpose, but its purpose was never to offer sustaining life. Right? The law could not do that. The law could not save us. It couldn't save anyone. Now here's a clear example of the superiority of the new covenant over the old. Bear with me. So the law is good, right? The law is good, but it doesn't have the power to save, as we said. Your wine eventually runs out. You can't live by the law, and if you try to live by the law, you will live an exhausted life. But it takes the supernatural gospel to take the ordinary and transform it into the extraordinary. Right? The gospel makes all things new. It takes water, a basic necessity of life, and turns it into wine, a delicacy. It makes your life really sweet. That's what the gospel does. It changes you. So the first wine represents the old order, but Jesus is coming to bring a new creation. He's bringing something new, and it's not a creation ex nihilo which means out of nothing, right? That's the way that he created in the very beginning, right? In Genesis, God spoke and there was nothing there and there were, then there was something there. But what Jesus does is he restores what's already there. He comes and fixes what is broken. He takes the existing creation, water, and takes it to wine, a delicacy, right? It's a beautiful way that Jesus works. Now think about this. The first wine uh, that, that, that was at the party, that was good wine, right? He says this is good. He admits that. And then it gets better. So the first wine was good. This was Judaism. Think about this. I know we're getting real typological here, but this is Judaism. If you remember, this covenant came with a figure named Moses. And what was his first miracle? Do you remember? Moses performed a miracle as the mediator of a covenant. He turned water to blood. Interesting, isn't it? That he comes performing his first miracle, turning water to blood, but he's doing this as a curse. He's coming and showing Pharisees, or not Pharisees, but showing Pharaoh what he can do, what his power is about, what the power of God is about. So he mediates this covenant. Now then comes the better wine. This is Christianity, where Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, turns water to wine and a blessing. Right? You see these connections here. It's really, really amazing. So right when the master thinks that he's about to bring the cheap stuff out because the people are drunk, he brings out the finest wines and he blesses the drunkards in spite of their sin. Right? They're all partying, probably a mess of themselves, and Jesus is saying, no, we're going to keep this party going. Right? We're going to party, and the disciples are going to have a really amazing moment where they're going to believe in me and be changed forever. Your marriage is going to be blessed. This thing isn't going to crash, and I'm going to make it extravagant. I'm going to make it amazing and beautiful. But think about this. He patches the old and the new together seamlessly where the party resumes, and there's not two peoples but one. I want you to think about that. There, there isn't old wine partiers and new wine partiers. There's just partiers at this point. And this is how the people of God are. We are, not, or we, are, we are now one party enjoying the blessings of Jesus that can all be traced all the way back to the original wedding, to Adam and Eve. 
when they were in the garden. We can go all the way back then to say we are all one people. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, old wine people, new wine people. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There is now one covenant and it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are all one people. Seamlessly brought together to keep the party going. Isn't it beautiful? He saves the best for last, it says in the text. You have to eat bread and water to eat, or to stay alive, right? You have to have the necessities to stay alive. But Jesus says, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, I'm not preaching a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here. I'm not saying that your life is just going to be amazing and you're going to have jets and all kinds of stuff. But there is a reality that when you step into life with Jesus, you have something changed. You step into a new kind of life, a life that is more abundant than you were living before. And this doesn't mean that you'll be rich. It doesn't mean that you have all these kind of things. But it does mean that you're going to have someone take care of you. It means that God saves the best for last. And one day you're going to have a great – or not one day. Right now you're going to have a hope in the resurrection. That something really, really amazing is going to happen, happen at the last. And even now that changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you experience life. Now, the psalmist says that he gave us wine to gladden the heart. In other words, following Jesus should not look gloomy, like gloomy, boring servanthood. When you follow Jesus, it should be exciting. Jesus is going to do some really, really cool stuff in your life. And you're not going to be able to draw connections to how it all worked out. You're just going to say, God showed up. Jesus showed up at that party. I have no idea how it all worked out, but Jesus did it a really amazing thing. He healed my father of cancer. He did this or that. Now, I have no idea how he did it. Maybe he used medical technology. Maybe he used this or that. Maybe he took what was already there and actually reshaped it, reconceptualized it, and he did an amazing thing. But guess what? When Jesus is at the party, it's a good party. That's what I want you to catch this morning is that Jesus' way is to bring us to a new way of living, of rejoicing, being excited about life, celebration. He's, he's recovering something here. He's, he's recovering a way of living, and it's a, a way of celebration. That's the goodness that he's restoring, and this is what this wine is a symbol of. Wine is a symbol of celebration, of excitement, of blessing, and it's what we find in Jesus. All the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, it says. So the wine, the oil, and the wheat that we see in all those texts in the Old Testament are like, why is wine, oil, and wheat that great? Well, it's that we get something even better in Jesus because he fulfills that, right? And when you believe in him, you have that, that, that presence of God filling up to the brim just like those pots. That presence of Jesus being with us. And that first sign, that changing the water to wine, symbolizes that fullness we have all received that we saw a couple of sermons ago that John the Baptist talks about. In Christ, we have that fullness of God. We have that full conception where he's revealed his glory to us in a new and amazing way that changes us forever. That's what I want you to get, church. I want you to see that in Jesus, we have all these blessings. We have a a reason to rejoice, a reason to get excited about life, and that God is going to take care of these things. He's going to fix all those conflicts that you have come up. When your wine runs out, Jesus is there. So church, as we close this morning, I, I pray that this sign has the same effect on you that it did the disciples. They saw this new covenant glory revealed in Jesus, and they believed. I want you to believe this morning. They trusted that this man was a new new mediator of a better covenant. Why? Because he came to save. Jesus shows up and does something that they hadn't seen before, and that's save people. Jesus is saving people. He's saving you. He's saving me. He's saving his church, his bride. They saw that he didn't just save that bridegroom. He saved the whole party. Jesus saves his church. So through his his substitutionary work, he restored order, but with an even greater extravagance. 
And he came to do the same to you. If your life feels like a party about to crash, and I know mine has felt like that before, like everything's about to crumble and you're feeling spent, just know that there's one who can save that party. There's one who can save your life. There's one who can save and keep things going. He can take your empty stone heart and fill it to the brim and transform it into a heart of flesh full of life. That's what John's gospel is written for you this morning, so that you can hear these good, uh, hear this good news of Jesus and be changed. Have your, your heart actually transformed to be conformed to the image of Christ, the most beautiful human being who's ever lived because he lived sinlessly. That propels us to live a life like that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so 